It's hard to believe it was 30 years ago. George H.W. Bush was the 41st president of the United States. During his time of being president, significant things would happen in the world that he would oversee. It was during this time that there would be the fall of the Berlin Wall. He would oversee the reunification starting now with West Germany and East Germany. During that time, there would be the Persian Gulf War. During that time, he would oversee getting rid of Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, freeing that little country. Desert Storm, it came, it went quickly, decisively. When Desert Storm was over, the approval rating of our 41st president, George Bush, was 91%. 91%. It was the highest approval rating ever since Harry Truman when World War II ended. Everybody knew he was going to win a second term. My goodness gracious, that was obviously a, a foregone conclusion. But George Bush would learn, as so many have learned, all glory is fleeting. In 1992, he found himself in the midst of a presidential race. His opponent was William Jefferson Clinton. The two men could not have been more different. It turned out George Bush at that time was 68 years old. Bill Clinton was 46. 22 years difference in their age. They were so very different in the way they had been brought up. George Bush had been raised up in Connecticut, a very wealthy family there in the East. He had the opportunity for the best of schools. He would serve his country and the Navy. He would get through, he would go, and he would start his own oil company in Texas. And then he would enter into politics. Bill Clinton, he was born and raised in Hope, Arkansas. His father was killed just a few months in a car accident right before he was born. He'd be raised for a while by a single mother, but she went back to school in, in New Orleans, and he was then left with his grandmother, who was raising him there in hope. His mom would graduate, come back, and then she would marry Roger Clinton. Bill Clinton would describe him as a man who was a gambler, an alcoholic, who abused his mother, no, it wasn't an easy and stable life growing up by any means. The Vietnam War was going on and he tried to do everything he could to make sure he didn't go to Vietnam and serve. And so then he decided to run for attorney general in Arkansas and was elected and then he was elected governor. In terms of service, in politics, you know, George Bush had had the opportunity to be ambassador to the UN he was the director of the CIA. He was vice president to Ronald Reagan, and it was Reagan who sent him special envoy that he began to work with China. And after having now been vice president for eight years, he was now been president for four. He had spent his life serving in politics. Bill Clinton, well, he had been governor of Arkansas. They couldn't have been more different. And when the campaign came along, it was a brutal campaign. It was interesting that Bill Clinton began telling the world, George Bush, well, he, uh, he is old and out of touch. 
68 years old? You're old? Man, that was a news flash. Wow, you're old and out of touch. It really stung George. And at times the frustration got so great, he finally called Bill Clinton a bozo. And he said, you know, my dog knows more about foreign policy uh, than Bill Clinton does. It was interesting, George later felt really bad about having called him a bozo. And Bill felt bad about having called George old. That was as bad as it got. Old and bozo? Oh, for the good old days. <laughs> right up to the very end, George Bush knew he was going to win. I mean, how could he not? Look what he had overdone. Overseeing the fall of the Berlin Wall, desert storm, all that had served. But that's not the way it worked out. In the end, it's Bill Clinton who won. And it hurt. It really hurt George Bush. But on January the 20th, there was a transfer of power. There was the inauguration. And, and Bill and Barbara got on a jet to fly out of town back to Houston. And when Bill Clinton came into the office there at the White House, there would be a note from George Bush, as presidents would always do, leaving a note to their successor. There was a note on the desk from George Bush to Bill Clinton, and George Bush said, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know that you will feel it too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be tough times, made even more difficult by criticism that you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give out advice, but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You'll be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success now is our country's success. I'm rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. You learn a whole lot about the character of the man, George Bush, when you, when you read that letter. Twelve years would go by. Twelve years would go by, and now it would be George W. Bush who was president of the United States. Number 43. It was on the day after Christmas, 2004. There was an earthquake out in the Indian Ocean, and it caused this enormous wave, a tsunami. It began rushing towards Southeast Asia, and that morning it would strike Thailand and Sri Lanka, Indonesia, all up and down the coast. More than 175,000 people would be killed, Hundreds of thousands would be injured. Millions would be left homeless. It was a natural disaster and a magnitude that we really had never seen before. It was unbelievable. Within just a couple of days, George Bush, 43, had called together his father and Bill Clinton to his office and he said, Would the two of you be willing to work together? to travel to Southeast Asia, to see the devastation, to meet with local government leaders, to find out their needs, and then to come back home and to help raise money for humanitarian aid. 
Both men agreed. Now you need to remember, George Bush, 41, was now 80 years old. Bill Clinton, well, he was 58. But together they went and hopped on a plane to fly to Southeast Asia. They began to tour the devastation, talking to different leaders. And this interesting thing happened. As they had all this time on the flight there and back, when they would get through touring during the day and come back to the hotel at night, they had time to talk. And they got to know each other. And what they discovered was they actually liked each other. George Bush did say, if you ever go around the world traveling with Bill Clinton, you better have a healthy ego because wherever we go, he gets treated like a rock star. George Bush didn't let that bother him. No, they really became friends. They discovered we really like each other. They came back home and they went to work trying to raise money. And they were working really hard at it when in August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina, a Category 5, hit the southern coast here and Gulf Coast in the United States. And the devastation again was unprecedented. And these two men joined forces together again, and they begin now raising money in the United States to respond to this, um, what had happened from Hurricane Katrina. In the end, they would raise $130 million to be distributed in humanitarian aid to the people on the coast. And what you begin to see over that year, too, was you found George Bush and Bill Clinton at the Super Bowl together, making a pitch, a commercial, asking for support for people in need. And then you saw them at a charity golf tournament playing together with people like Greg Norman. And, and then you started finding out they were on a plane together to go to Rome to the funeral of Pope John Paul II. And then what you found out was the Clinton family was going to Kennebunkport, Maine to be with the Bushes at their home. And they came and stayed at their home and now there were pictures of Bill Clinton and George Bush out driving his speedboat. No, the truth of the matter is, they really were friends. They really had come to know one another and appreciated each other. And it was like the United States began watching these two men and they were so excited. We were excited because it was the first time in such a long time to see people of two different political parties actually come together and work together for a common good. They didn't go together. 80 and 58. Their backgrounds, their experiences, their ideas. And yet they became friends. It was Barbara Bush who was so very fond of saying when she saw the two of them together, there goes my odd couple. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, The Odd Couple. It really goes back to Neil Simon's play back in 1965, big Broadway hit. And it was a really a play that was asking the question, can two people who are very different be friends, care about each other, live with each other? 
And we wanted to build on that and ask, is it really possible that people who have passionate beliefs that are different, can we be friends? Can we get to know one another and care about each other? Do we believe that God can take us with all of our differences and bring us together for good? You know, you and I right now live in a time where there is such divisiveness. We are so polarized on so many subjects, not just a few, so many subjects. The question of abortion, pro-choice, pro-life. Gun control, gay marriages, the pandemic, how should it be handled? Who should we be electing? No, we're polarized on so many issues. And any one of those issues, it's amazing people get so passionate, it's almost like they feel like they can't be friends with someone who thinks opposite on any one of those issues. They wind up tearing families apart. They wind up tearing friendships apart. They wind up tearing our schools and churches apart. Because somehow if we don't agree on all of these things or one of them, then can we really be friends? You know, that's an important question, and that's what I believe Paul was addressing in this letter to the Philippians. We've already looked at how he talked about this in his letter to the Romans and then into the Corinthians. This morning, we look at the church of the Philippians. You know, this is one of those churches that the first, it is the first church that Paul started on European soil. You remember how he met Lydia down by the riverside? And there they were baptized and she decided she'd be willing to start a church in her home. Paul was always very close to the Philippians. They loved him. They had just sent an emissary and money and clothes to Paul while he was in prison in Rome. Paul still looks to the Philippians with such great love. And when he writes this letter, it's not like he's writing to the Galatians or the Corinthians and kind of doing a little bit of scolding and what you need to do. Now this letter is it's one of joy and affirmation. But even in this letter, he knows in Philippi, there are people who think differently. He knows these people well. He loves them. He lived there with them. And he knows there are people who are very different in Philippi. And so he winds up saying to them, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul isn't saying, I'm asking you all to believe the same thing. He's saying, if we're going to be the family of Christ, this body of Christ, then we've got to be of one mind. And that's the mind of love. One mind even though we are different, it takes all of our differences to make up the body of Christ. It's the word that he is sharing with the Philippians. It's the word that he would share wherever he went on his missionary journeys. 
And I believe it's not only a word that he was sharing so long ago, I believe it's the word that needs to be shared with us today. It really is possible for us who think differently from one another to still be respectful and to still be friends. How can that happen? I believe Paul shared with us two very important ideas. First of all, he says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit. Conceit. It's when you and I slip into that temptation to feel like we are more important than anybody else and what we think matters more than anybody else. Selfishness? Well, selfishness when it's all about me. I, I, I want things to be good for me. And isn't it so easy for us to think about everybody else who may struggle with selfishness and conceit and we don't ever like to think about it for me? We all fall into that category sometimes. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit. You know, 2020 has certainly been a year that I will never forget. I, in seminary, I never got trained, how do you have church during a pandemic? They didn't offer that course. And oh my goodness, here we've had a pandemic, still wrestling through a pandemic, struggling with the issues of the economy, having a national election, but also the natural disasters this year. The wildfires out on the west that have just been unprecedented and the amount of hurricanes, we ran through all the names and we're into the Greek alphabet and they keep coming. I have watched over and over all that's been happening in the south and, and the flooding that is going on. And you know what's so inspiring though, through all this pandemic and these natural disasters, you always see people stepping up to go bless life, going out to help one another, helping their neighbors. There's been so much inspiration in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of all of these natural disasters. Now, it reminded me of a book that I read a little while back called Our Better Angels by Jonathan Reckford. He is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity. And he made a fascinating statement that really has stuck with me. He said, the way we respond to a disaster should be a template for the way we respond to each other every day. It really could be that simple. It really could be that profound. There are always those who are in need and there are always those in a position to offer help. To treat people every day the way we would if it was in the midst of a, of a natural disaster. How simple and how profound. I've seen so many people, so many stories that have talked all about how we are doing that. Jimmy Carter, I've always been a fan. Whether you liked his politics or not, you have to say he's a great human being. Jimmy Carter said, when the water rises, so do our better angels. I've seen it again and again. We all have. Pick a past disaster and I'll tell you at least a dozen stories that stand as a living testament to our collective compassion, generosity, and unity. Unfortunately, we all know that that's not the world we live in every day. 
Instead, we seem trapped in a never-ending storm of rancor, divisiveness, distraction. How much we could accomplish together. If we were able to see the world every day the way we see the world after a disaster. Neighbors in need, people with resources, all of us in this together. So get busy helping someone else and see, over time, the things you might have in common instead of the only things that might divide you. Remember what can happen when we love our neighbor as ourselves. There are storms that bring us together and storms that divide us. We have a chance now to choose. To live in such a way each day as we would do when there's a, a huge disaster. I think about how we responded when there was the Murrah building bombing. As a community, we were incredible. You didn't look, will I help you based on the color of your skin? We didn't offer help based on who did you vote for in the last election? We didn't help people based on their sexual orientation. We didn't help people based on their religion. We were there to help one another. Because we understood there is one race, the human race, and we are a part of that. And what does it mean for us to be there to help one another? No, we were at our best in the way we responded. We can do that all the time. So that we discover that those who are different and passionate in our beliefs, actually we can still be friends. That inspires the world. That's what Paul was trying to say to the church. Be of one mind in Christ. And if we're in one mind in Christ, we're going to be an incredible witness for Christ in the world. People see. They want to respond to that. There were so many people who were talking and whole books written about George Bush and Bill Clinton and their relationship. I mean, it was really neat as I started doing research to find how much was written all about it. And yet it was also a little sad that it was so unusual that it would cause us to want to write books and so many people to talk about. It was Bill Clinton who said, I think when people saw George and me, well, what they saw was, what they said was, this is the way that our country is supposed to work. You and I can't change what everybody else is doing, but we can sure take responsibility for what we're doing. We can make this work by truly doing nothing out of selfishness or conceit to have one mind in Christ. Secondly, Paul would say, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's really fascinating, having gone back to research this relationship, this odd couple of Bush and Clinton, and it's easy to see. Why did it happen? Because they were focused on the interest of others. They came together to see what could we do for Southeast Asia, for Thailand, Indonesia, Sri Lanka. 
They came together to say, what are we going to do for the people of the Gulf Coast? And it's when they came together in the interest of others that it created the space for them to be able to visit and get to know one another and discover we like each other. We can truly be friends. It's because there was a focus on trying to take care of the interest of others. Paul says we are called to love one another. If there is any incentive of love, then love means, you know, you don't put your own happiness first. Love means you're willing to sacrifice for somebody else's well-being. And I talk about that every time I come up here to do a wedding. What does it mean to say you love someone? You're saying I'm willing to sacrifice for that person. I'm concerned about their happiness more than my own. That's when you give up selfishness and conceit. So when you and I look to the interest of others, it creates space for us to get to know one another who may be different. And don't be thinking about all the other people who need to do this. We need to do this. You and me. What does it mean to look to the interest of others? It's what brings us together and we're able to make things happen. That's what happened for Clinton and Bush. As they focused on this, they were able to do amazing things. Ashley Fetters is one of those who did a lot of writing about this relationship. And I wanted to read you what she said about them. Perhaps it's easy, this was written just a year or so ago. Perhaps it's easy from today's vantage point to underestimate the political divisions of the Bush and Clinton years. True, today a cross-partisan friendship seems all but impossible. And yet, such friendships weren't exactly common then either. Clinton's liberal politics and Bush's conservative ones, they clashed in the public arena in bitter and hostile battles. What their friendship is testament to is not some more simpler, more peaceful era, but quite the opposite. It's a testament to the possibility of human connection, even in divided times. The possibility of human connection, even in divided times. It is possible. Paul says, have the mind of Christ. We will think different. We may believe different things. But we can still be one family with a mind of Christ. If we choose not to be selfish and conceited, if we look not only to our own interests but to the interest of others, then we can be the body of Christ. That is a great reflection into the world. And when we come to know that love of Christ in our lives, then we want to share that with others. There will always be people in need and there is always people who are able to respond. When you've come to know the love of Christ, you want to respond. You know, last week I was telling you about Russell Day, And I wanted to follow up and, and kind of change my focus in the story. Last week I told you about Russell Day. He was the young man, African-American, down in Louisiana, who was a security guard at Baton Rouge General Hospital. And it was there that he was just simply working hard in order to try to keep, take care of his family, his wife, and, and he soon would have a daughter. 
but in this, that time while he was there, he kept trying to learn more about medicine. He thought it might be exciting, and sure enough, he had asked maybe 30 doctors, and they'd all turned him down about shadowing them. But there finally was one doctor, um, Patrick Griffenstein, who was a surgeon, who said, okay. He was patient and he was kind. Russell began to shadow him and he discovered he had a passion for medicine. He never would have envisioned that. He never would have seen himself in that role. And because he saw himself in that role, he would finish college, he would then go on to NYU, where he would earn a PhD in molecular oncology. He would apply to Tulane Medical School and get accepted. And seven years after he had been a security guard at Baton Rouge General Hospital, he came back as a third year medical student with his white coat to begin doing rotations at Baton Rouge um, Medical Hospital. I mean, it's such a cool story. And I, I focused last week about the Patrick Griffinstein. What does it mean to be someone will be patient and kind and open the door for someone else. We can do that. But what I wanted to think about today was Russell a day and what it means to be so grateful and then to want to do that for other people. You and I are grateful for the gift of God's grace. And if you know the gift of God's grace, then you want to be a blessing in this world. It's what will bring you a sense of joy and change your life. Well, Russell Day, I learned a lot more about him as I continued digging. It turned out he was born and raised in Lake Charles, single mom. They didn't have much. He said he knows what it is like to be so hungry, you literally go into the dumpster to look for food. Hard to believe that happens in the United States. He really didn't see much of a future. There was no one to give him a vision about the future. He joined the service, joined the Navy. And it's while he was in the Navy that he began to realize, you know, there's a bigger world out there. Maybe I could do something more. I could make something of myself. When he got out of the service, he married his high school sweetheart, Mallory. And I love that it was Mallory who said, you know, Russell, you are very smart. You just don't know it yet. She talked him into going to college. So he applied to Southern University there in Louisiana, historically all-black college. And he started going there thinking, maybe I'll be a social worker. You see, he's a guy of great faith. And as he's thinking about that, suddenly what he discovers, he loves chemistry. And it's his chemistry professor who says, you are so good at this, you ought to be thinking about biology. But he had no idea about medicine and hospitals. He's working as a security guard there at the hospital with no feelings about being a doctor until someone, Patrick Griffinstein, lets him shadow him and he suddenly sees this world of medicine and it gets so inspiring and he thinks, that's what I want to do. And so he goes to NYU and his second daughter would be born on the day he got his acceptance into Tulane. And it was so exciting. And he was able to get through and then at third year to show back up at Baton Rouge where seven years before here he had been this security guard. And I love that he was talking all about saying, you know, I'm so grateful to the Lord. He said, the timing has always been just right. I can't claim credit for that. I give thanks to the Lord who has led me to this day. 
And he gave thanks to his wife and to Patrick Griffenstein and to all those along the way who were there to encourage him. But I saw this interview with him. And this other person was interviewing him as TV show and he was so taken by Russell Lede and what he had done. And, and he said to him, you know, when you came pulling up in front of the hospital after seven years, when you came pulling up that day, did you have the song playing, Look at Me Now? I'd understand that. But Russell today said, no. He said, I came back with an incredible sense of gratitude and thankfulness to be back to the hospital where I got my dream of being a physician. He said, this is no time for me to have pride on my chest. No, it's an incredible gift to be able to help take care of people. He said, I did have a song playing that day when I drove up. But the song was by George Porter, and it was called, Take Me to the Alley. I'd never heard it before. I went and looked it up and listened to it. Take me to the alley. Take me to the afflicted ones. Take me to the lonely ones who somehow lost their way. Let them hear me say, I am your friend. Come to my table. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.